This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app. And you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, it's been another infuriatingly inconsistent week for the Baggies. A victory against Bournemouth was followed up by a pathetic performance against Stoke that felt so predictable it was borderline scripted. We'll get to the question of why are we better against the better teams in this league in a second, Pete. But first of all, were you surprised Bruce changed a winning team after the victory on Wednesday night for the game against Stoke at the weekend? Yeah, I was, because obviously you just beat him one of the best teams in the league and you'd half expect, I mean, I think most people would expect you to, to keep the, the squad the same. And Gardner Hickman's been playing well in that wide eight role. He got shifted out to, to wing back. And to me, it looked like we wanted to be a bit more, attack more down the left and get early crosses in from Townsend into into Carroll. I think Townsend attempted six or seven early crosses into the box to try and hit Carroll. And that looked like a bit of a tactic. And, um, Diangano played a bit further, a bit more wide to the right to kind of, again, get those three players out wide. Instead of it being Furlong, Gardner-Hickman and Ajayi, it was more like Ajayi, Gardner-Hickman and Diangano. He played a bit closer to them. Carroll was a bit more, through the data, he looked a bit more isolated central just for those early crosses and, and to well, feed off him there. Definitely. Watching the game, Pete, it felt like that because the balls into Carroll, as you say, particularly first half, he was winning a lot of flick-ons. We all know Carroll wins an inordinately large amount of aerial duels, but there was no one no one running beyond because, as you say, Grady was playing playing so wide. I didn't understand the tactical approach from Bruce. No, I don't know whether he wanted more bodies in that central area to provide a bit of protection. It might have been something that they spotted in in some pre-match analysis of Stoke, because if you've got Malumbi in that, as that centre mid instead of Gardner-Hickman, then he's going to provide you a bit more protection cent- centrally, because I think Gardner-Hickman is probably instructed to, but I think he also naturally drifts wide a little bit, and which is good when we're attacking down the wings, but it might compromise us a bit in defensive transi- 
transitions if he's if he's out wide and, instead of being central. And the the thing that was noticeable as well for me is that it was we've used the phrase square pegs in round holes quite a lot on this podcast and that's what it felt like with me with the with the three in midfield with Moat Livermore and Malumbi. You look at the data You've got Livermore making dribbles. Why? Why? He is not a ball-carrying midfielder. He never has been, and he never will be. And then you've got one progress. Sorry, one key pass from all three of them during the game. I mean, towards the end, actually, we we seem to get it relatively right. Robinson came on in the number 10 and Robinson has cut a lot of flack on this podcast. So it's only fair for balance to say that Robinson was actually very, very good when he came on in that number 10 role. Also, again, another player that gets quite a bit of flack from the Albion fans, Adam Reach, actually, again, performs pretty well when he came on. But the problem is, one, the game is largely gone at that point anyway. Okay, we got it back to 2-1 and there was an opportunity there. But the danger always was that what happened would happen, that you're chasing a game so much and you're going to get done on the break. And inevitably, that is what happened because Stoke have, have some have some quick forwards. They brought on Josh Madger, who is very, very quick. And inevitably, they did us on, on the break. Ultimately, the damage was done by going 2-0 down in a game that we never, ever, ever should have gone 2-0 down in. And when you look at the data across the whole game, Pete, it's largely frustrating because whilst we weren't good and nobody thinks we were, we had enough in that game, particularly second half after the changes, to have actually got something out of it. If, one, we don't make utterly, utterly moronic mistakes for the first two goals. And secondly, if Bruce had got the team right... From the off, because I thought taking Taylor Gardner Hickman out of that central midfield was crazy. Uh, yeah, and I agree with that. Whether it was for something they'd spotted him the way that Stoke played to provide that bit more protection or, or something else. But I think it wasn't just a case of missing him in there, but also missing his combinations and running, making those runs in behind and playing the balls in behind for Furlong. There's a few times against Blues that they linked up with those through balls beyond the back line and with Ajay as well. They'd They've made some nice, nice little moves together. So we kind of, we kind of missed that a little bit. And I think, I mean, if you look at the expected goals, then I think it was one of our, one of our better performances in terms of it. I think it's been one of the few times under Bruce that we've actually created more um, expected goals in the opposition. And I mean, admittedly, that kind of is influenced by the fact that we were chasing the game for so long, and that we're more likely to throw men forward and to try and create those chances. But and we had an expected goals of 1.68 and Stoke had 1.5. So in terms of that, it was pretty close. But it was, I mean, it was two very sloppy pieces of defending that conceded both those set pieces. And I want to talk about specifics in the Stoke game in a more general sense in a moment, namely the defending and the defending in recent weeks against, uh, under Steve Bruce and also our record against lower half teams versus our record against uh, against top half teams. Because as we said on the last pod, the more irrelevant this season comes, the le- becomes the less point there is in talking about and going into each game in real, real granular detail. Because after Bournemouth, maybe it looked like there might have been point a point to doing a deep dive on these two games. But after losing to Stoke, there really isn't. We're, the, se- the season's done. Even if we win the next two, I can't see any any possible way that we make the playoffs. We're just simply too far off it. Even if nobody in their 
Bar Forest seem to be able to actually string a run together to kill off the likes of us and Millwall, who really should be dead and buried in this playoff race at, uh, at this point. But uh, before we get to the defending and before we get to the record under Bruce against bottom half teams, I just want to make a point on Andy Carroll. And it's similar to the the tweet that I put out on Saturday night after after the game, which is we absolutely have to sign him up in the summer because he was tremendous against Bournemouth. Absolutely superb. And in both boxes as well, by the way, some of his defending was, was outstanding. And once again, he was the one really, really positive thing against Stoke. Some of his play with his, his back to goal. I didn't think we played to his strengths, particularly in the first half. As you say, Pete, we did leave him deeply isolated. I thought dragging Grady out to the, to the wing did not help him at all because in all honesty, unless he's up against um, Nat Phillips every week, who somehow seems to manage to get caught wrong side and get done for pace by Andy Carroll, which I don't think we're going to see happen an awful lot. In reality, Carroll is going to need players around him or he's going to need the ball inside the penalty area to make things happen. So leaving him isolated is pretty criminal. But I thought second half, where we actually got our game head on and started doing the right things into Carroll, you just see what an asset he is at this level. And I said to somebody earlier today on on Twitter who they, they said something along the lines of Carroll is the type of player that we need. I'm not necessarily sure he's who we need. And I said, quite plain and simply, you are not going to do any better than Andy Carroll for free. And that's that's the way I see it, simply put. Yeah, well, he's, I mean, if not the best, then one of the best players in the air in the, in the league. And when you've got someone that's, one of the best players at doing something, then if you can get him to do it regularly, then it's going to bring good results. And if we can get balls into the box for Carroll, I mean, he's going to get chances and then he's going to eventually start putting them away. In terms of having him isolated, I think it could work if you use it in the right way. If you kind of forget about him for most of the build-up stage and kind of just use those wide areas and then get balls into the box, then it doesn't necessarily matter if he's isolated in, in build-up. But... I mean, against Stoke, he received 29 progressive passes, which is that's a, a massive amount. The next highest was was Grady Diangana with nine. And in total, he completed 63 progressive passes. So Carroll received just under half of them. So that kind of shows he is still important in, in build-up and being able to go long and early to him, even if we're not getting too many men around him, which, I mean, could then point at that being a mistake in the Stoke game by not having Diangana a bit more central. Yeah, just, just from a style point of view as well, Pete, it doesn't because obviously Val got a lot of stick for going long, long ball, hoof ball that that people like to call it. Again, you and I don't really think that's what it was, but that's how people people like to pigeonhole it, or some people, I should say. I'm not going to tar everyone with the same brush. From an aesthetic point of view, it does look better as well when Andy Carroll is bringing the ball down from a long ball and bringing in your Robinsons, your your Dean Garners, your Grants. Aesthetically, it looks better than a ball into the box or a set piece into the box and everybody fighting for the bits, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. And he, he does that really well. He's not just good at winning headers and flick-ons and what have you. He's good at actually jumping up and bringing the balls down on his chest because he's still, I mean, he's still about a foot higher than any of the players he comes up against when he does that. So, And he's really strong in doing that, which does look good. But equally, he can cause can cause chaos if you just kind of play with the flick-ons and then press afterwards, which is, I'm guessing, how, how Val would have liked to use him, kind of go along into him and, 
and be able to cause that chaos and press and try and win the, the second and third balls after that. But yeah, there's despite him being, I mean, he's very much got one strength in his, his area ability. He's still a good footballer, as we see, and a, a good finisher. But his, I'd say his main ability is his strength and aerial ability. But there's, there's still a lot of ways you can play with him. And just, just again, one of my little public service announcements that I like to do. Can people please stop saying he's not the player he was? No, he's not. Because he was an England international who was going to major tournaments with England and he was playing in the Champions League and Cup finals for, for Liverpool. Let's, let's get some perspective here. If he was the player that he was, he would not be playing for West Bromwich Albion mid-table in the Championship. The reason we have him is because he's not the player that he was. However, what he is, is still a class act. And Andy Carroll, having dropped off a little bit from the level which made him capable to lead the line for Liverpool and for England and saw West Ham pay an awful lot of money for him, that is a really, really high level. Even dropping off a bit from that, he is still more than capable of standing out quite dramatically in the championship, isn't he? Yeah, and one of the reasons that we've probably managed to get him is that he's in the past he's had a bad record of injuries, as everyone knows. And that might have put off some teams that are in better positions in Albion from going for him. So obviously he's not the player he was when he was playing for England and Liverpool and and what have you. But I think the fact that he has had that bad injury record meant that we've been able to get him for maybe a little bit cheaper with a little bit less competition from good clubs. And he's still at that high level. Just moving to the other end of the pitch and unfortunately a less positive tack and the two goals, the first two goals that Stoke scored on Saturday were nothing short of embarrassing. The second was more embarrassing in the sense that fool me once, shame on you, fool, fool me twice, shame on me, I think is the is the expression that springs to mind. Because how we have fallen for the same trick twice is abysmal. It's utterly abysmal. And the only difference really between the two goals is that the second ball's in the air and Brown is able to head it in rather than rather than square it back across goal for Jake Livermore, who I'm not really sure what he's trying to do for the first one, to be honest. I'm not gonna not gonna go too hard on him, but I do think he should have been able to clear that ball back where it came from rather than stick it through Sam Johnson's legs. I was uh, I'm in the Birmingham Road, uh, literally a few rows behind that. So to say I had a perfect view of it is an understatement. I can't I just don't know how he hasn't managed to clear that ball. But nonetheless, he was far from the most most culpable thing in either of those two goals. To get caught out like that is embarrassing to say the least and it's not the first time we talked after Bristol City about how bad the defending was from set pieces Pete what has happened because these are not goals we were conceding under Val was was the organization just better under under Ishmael than it is now under Bruce what what has changed because we under Val yes we would concede goals sometimes not many we have the best defensive record in the league and I think Val's tactic was we will give away very few chances, but when we do, they will be high percentage chances and there is a good chance that the opposition will score. There was one or two individual errors. You think back, for example, to the Kipre-Johnston debacle at, at Derby County, but they were largely few and far between. We certainly weren't seeing two in a game like we did at Bristol City and then two in a game against Stoke City. It seems like, I don't know whether concentration has dropped off, whether organisation is lower. People will accuse the players of feeling like they're on, on the beach. But I don't see how 
Bristol City coming off the back of the Fulham win and Stoke coming off the off the back of the Bournemouth win, that the players could possibly think that their season was over. Because if we had picked up, for example, six points from those two games, I think we'd only be either two or three points off the playoffs. So what what, what has changed? Why are we suddenly so fallible and so seemingly prone to individual mistakes? Well, my guess would be that there's less of a focus on it from the, the coaching staff. I know under... Under Ishmael, I think it was Adam Murray that did a lot of the um, corners and set-piece coaching. And I think it was either Moz or Brunt said on a podcast that they used to get the players in like in the morning for a game to just Yeah, it was, it was Brunt the... on, on the Fozcast, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, just it might not be something that the players enjoy, but if you really drill it into them, then it's something that can be practised and worked on pretty intensely to defend the right areas and know who's going for what ball if it goes into a certain area, and just the the correct setup. So I think because it's a dead ball situation, and you can kind of predict the exact situation and work on that exact situation, it's almost easier to work on set pieces in training than it is in open play, because you can kind of set them up in training and you know exactly how it's going to be if it's open play. You don't know if the maybe the wing has been dragged inside earlier in the move, and it's just open play is a bit more creative, whereas set pieces... It's easier to work on in terms of working on attacking set pieces and probably in defending set pieces as well. So if there's a less less of a focus from the coaching staff, then I think it's an area that you can see a lot of change in between different coaches. Has Bruce thrown the baby out with the bathwater a little bit in trying to make us more entertaining? Are we now more susceptible? Yeah, maybe. Like I say, if he's more focused, spends more of the time on the on the training ground working on attacking shape and combinations and and how we're going to attack then he might spend less time working on how we're going to defend set pieces and even score from set pieces just set pieces in general like I say it's a it's an area where there are are gains to be made if you really put the work in um some of the top clubs in the Premier League employ well I think a lot of them are starting to now employ specific coaches for set pieces that design routines that are going to give you the best chance of scoring as well as um setups that are going to make it make it easier to defend corners so um, under under Roy although we didn't have a designated set piece coach I know that Appy used to spend an awful lot of time almost building a dossier of of set pieces it was it was almost NFL-esque in terms of how we had various different different plays and you look how good we became under Roy in those sorts of situations, Brunt's delivery from uh, from those sorts of situations to the likes of Macaulay. And it really does that 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 amount of work. I know that's in the attacking sense, but we did we we rarely conceded as well from set pieces under Roy. Um that, that kind of work really pays off, doesn't it? Yeah, and like I say, it's one of the few moments in a game of football where you know exactly where everyone's gonna be because it's it's a dead ball and people get into their positions, whether it be the, the attackers or the defenders. So it's something you can repeatedly work on in training rather than open play where it's kind of a bit more situational where you don't know exactly who's going to be where or what pass is going to be played and and all the different factors that go into it. Set pieces you can work on and you can know your roles and you can know where you're defending and who's defending what and just what to do if something happens. Whereas if you're not spending the time on the training ground working on that, then then obviously you're going to see you're going to see smaller returns. And maybe what we're talking about here might be a contributing factor into the next point that I'm, I'm going to make, because 
I've I've had a look at the numbers. It's noticeable the fact that we perform well against the better sides. We've obviously beaten Fulham and Bournemouth under under Steve Bruce, but we've been very very poor against the lesser sides in the division. To put this into perspective, our record against teams who are currently in the bottom half, not not taking into account where they were when we played them, but our record against teams who are currently in the bottom half under Steve Bruce reads played five. Won one, drawn one, lost three. So that's four points. That's points per game of 0.8. So to put that into perspective, that gets you relegated. That is that is abysmal. Just to put, again, put that into perspective, although we weren't brilliant under Valerian Ishmael against teams who are currently in the bottom half, we played 15 games against teams in the bottom half. We won six, drew five, and lost four. That's 23 points. So that is 1.53 points per game. Now, that's not quite good enough to get you into the playoff places, but it's top 10. That's that's pretty much where that's at, which I realise is not where we want, where we want to be. But w- what we're looking at under Ishmael is basically top 10 form and against the bottom half teams and under Bruce we're looking at relegation form against the bottom half teams so my point is Pete that it seems like by trying to make us a bit more creative in the game I'm not sure we've got the players to necessarily do that now Val played football which relied on the small margins but equally, we were never that likely to lose a game. And if we weren't going to win them, we were going to walk away with a point. Whereas Bruce, it feels like, has made us susceptible at the back. But we're not necessarily any more likely to score against teams who come with a low block and make us make it really hard to play against. Whereas when we come up against Bournemouth and Fulham and they come out and they have a go at us, if we're at it, we actually do have enough quality in our team to turn these teams over. And if our defence are having a decent game and our goalkeepers having a decent game, as Sam Johnston did in both the Fulham and the Bournemouth games, then we, we're capable of turning these teams over purely on quality versus quality going toe to toe. But if you make it a small margin game where it is literally going to be down to whether we take an opportunity or not and how well we defend, under Bruce, we don't seem to be capable of keeping it tight at one end and nicking the the winner at the other. Whereas under Ishmael, one of those we were bad at, which was nicking the winner. But in terms of keeping it tight, we generally did. So largely, to take the old, old Tony Pulis-ism, we, you start with a point and you make sure you don't give that away. And that was generally what we did under Val. I feel like under under Bruce against the bottom half teams, we give our point away too much. Yeah, and you mentioned then about the performances against the, the top half teams compared to the bottom half of the table teams. And it, I mean, it's so frustrating for the fans because we go and beat Fulham one week and then we and then we lose or draw, draw. I think it was, to Bristol City the next week. And then we go and beat Bournemouth and then, and then we lose to Stoke. And it's just, it looks like we're going to get ourselves back into a playoff bush and... And then we go and lose against a, a side that's significantly weaker than the side that we've beaten the week before. But it, it and... feels inevitable as well <laughs> when you when you go into the game. I don't I don't know many people who went into went into the Stoke game even after the Bournemouth performance feeling confident that we were going to get a result. No, and um, that's it's kind of points out that the fans see that it's a problem as well because 
if no one's feeling confident playing Stoke after we've just beaten Bournemouth, then then something's wrong. And I had a quick look at a graph that we put out quite often on the, the pod account on Twitter and at the expected goal difference, and I compared it to the expected goal difference of the teams that we're playing. So to see who's the stronger and weaker teams in the league. And under, under Ishmael, it was pretty even. We do best when we play the weaker teams and do our worst when we play the, the stronger teams, which kind of makes sense. But then since Bruce has taken over, it's been a bit of a, a mismatch and we've had some of our best performances against the teams that are better than the teams that we're not performing against, which is, I mean, it's strange to me because you think against those weaker teams that just purely the quality of the squad would stand out. I mean, we've got Robinson and Grant who, as much as many fans don't like, they are very good footballers. And if you compare them to the front two of some of the teams that we've played, then then there's a massive gulf in quality between them. And you'd think, and that's not just the strikers either, that's that's over the whole squad, but you'd think that would stand out in the games when we're playing playing those weaker sides. Are we missing that player, that high volume player in front of the, the back four, back four, back five, whatever it might be, to take the ball off, off the defenders? Because inevitably, as we were playing Stoke, a lot of attention and a little bit of a couple of media stories turned to Romain Sawyers and saying that he is set for talks on his future this coming week was it was the story i don't know whether uh, whether that's whether that's accurate or not and what those talks are going to entail of course we have an option that we can exercise on remain to extend his contract by another year however i would imagine that the club would want there to be some willingness on remain's part to be a part of the club and therefore they need to have a conversation with him and find out what he wants to do because Whilst some people like to criticise players for not being fully committed to a club, I don't think after some of the stuff that happened to remain towards the end of his time at the Albion, I don't think anybody could tar him with that particular brush because it, somebody's somebody's got jailed for what they did to remain. And I don't think you could blame remain if his head was at, I want a clean break. I want to, I want to go, go somewhere else. Equally, I think, to be honest, I think that was... I certainly hope that was one utter moron and that the rest of the fans, if Romain was to come back, would welcome him gleefully with open arms because I think we've missed him horribly this season. And the numbers seem to suggest that, Pete. When I when I had a look at this, I had a look back at the nineteen twenty season. That season, Romain was top of our average passes per game with 62.4 per game. You compare that to this season... And I realise there's a marked change of style and Val wasn't particularly worried about completing passes or anything like that. But nonetheless, Moa is our highest passing midfielder with 41.2. Equally, Romain got nine, a 90% pass success rate over the course of the season. To, put, to give you an idea of that, how incredible an achievement that is, he played 42 games, 3,720 minutes, and still completed nine out of 10 passes. That is absolutely staggering. It really is. And this season, our highest pass success rate out of all the players who've played a minimum of 30 games is Mowat at 76.5%. Again, not a criticism of Mowat. He can only do what his manager asks him to do. And Val wasn't particularly worried about playing accurate pinpoint passes. But nonetheless, if we are going to revert the style back to one where we keep the ball more, Romain Sawyer's all the data suggests is absolutely your man. 
And also, and just the last asset that I've got down here that he brings to the party, the, the way he receives the ball in tight areas, because he was only in that 1920 season, he was only behind Pereira as our most fouled player. Now, what that shows me, and that coupled with his past success rate, is that Romain, when he receives the ball, generally does one of two things. He either turns out of a tight space and gives it to another West Bromwich Albion player, or he gets fouled, in which case we retain the ball because we have a free kick. Either way, Romain retains the ball. And I know one of the criticisms that... And one of the comebacks to this from Albion fans who aren't a massive fan of Romain Sawyers is that it's okay. He passes the ball a lot. He completes a lot of passes. It's all sideways, sideways. I think you've got some numbers that rather dispel that as a myth, Pete. I do. And that is that in the last promotion season, last season in the championship that he played for Albion, he completed 9.3 passes to the final third per 90. He did that at a completion rate of 85% which is extremely high, especially when you compare it to, to players this season. These numbers here were taken before the Swansea game, but nonetheless, Moat was the highest per game with 8.36, so still one pass less than Sawyer's to the final third each game. And the highest completion rate was Jason Molumbi, who completed them at 68%, but only completed 4.82, which is about half of the number of Sawyer's at 17 less percent. So the quality and and the quantity of movement into the final third is there's just a massive, massive gap in quality between Sawyers and the current midfielders that we've got in the squad to do that. So if we are looking to play in a style that's more possession based and more passing rather than long balls next season, then then I think he could be key because he offers something that none of the current midfielders do. I was going to say, I think for me, I think one of the things that people also don't take into account because I hear a lot of Oh, we could do better. We, I, <laughs> I got, I got people telling me we can do better than Andy Carroll. I got people telling me on on Twitter we can do better than Connor Townsend. And I'm sure there's people out there. I'm sure there's a lot of Albion fans who rate Remain Soyers, but I think there's also, I'm sure, some who who would tell you we can do better than Remain Soyers. I think what you have to take into account is how much it costs to try and do better than anybody, and how much of a gamble that is because you don't know what you're getting. For me, Pete, it feels an absolute no-brainer to bring Romain Sawyers back into the fold. Obviously, assuming we are going to use him in the way that he is right to be used, because if you if we were going to play a new version of Valable, then there's no point bringing him back because he wouldn't have a place in the side. But I don't, I don't think realistically we are going to do that. I think if Bruce is still the manager, I think we will try and play a more progressive style of football he has indicated to that I think he said some weeks ago that um, if he could recall Romain Sawyers he would which suggests that Romain Sawyers fits into the way that he would like to play football and I mean I don't give our hierarchy a lot of credit for very good reasons but I would like to think at this stage even they if they were going to hire a new manager that's not Steve Bruce would hire somebody who plays a brand of football that would appeal to the Albion fans and again therefore would probably suit Romain Sawyers given the fact that it cost us zero pounds no agents fees no signing on fees no nothing like that it would literally just be activating 
another year in his contract. And we know exactly what we're going to get from him. He's already tried and tested in our team, in a promotion winning team at this level. Pete, it just seems like an absolute no brainer to me to bring him back. Yep. As long as we're going to play that possession, a possession style of football rather than a, a more transition style of football where he, he doesn't really fit in and kind of gets bypassed and doesn't play to his strengths. But if we're playing possession, then yeah, I think we've got to sign him on. Like you say, it's it's an easy deal to do. We know the player, um, we know how he trains, we know his personality. And it's just, there's a lot less factors that could go wrong um, than if you signed a player that might be slightly unknown. Obviously, you can do your, do your research on him, but you're not going to know him as well as a player that grew up at the club for a long period and then and then's played for us for a couple of seasons as well. So, yeah, if we're going to play a possession style of football, then then as you say, it's a no-brainer. Bundling the three of them in together, is that pretty much the argument across the board, Sawyer's Carol Clark, that really we we know what we're getting. They're tried and tested within our side. Okay, we've not had a successful season this year, but Carol and Clark, the two that have been here, have been far from our worst players that, in fact, I would say Clark has been our best defender and the numbers tend to back that up. And... Carroll has been one of our better forwards. I'm slightly loath to say our best forward because obviously Grant has scored the goals. DK's looked good when he's come in, but there is no, there's nobody who thinks Carroll has underperformed whilst he's been there. And then you've got Sawyer's a guy who's, who's already performed for us at this level with those three. When you start looking at, at the recruitment for next season, have the recruitment staff kind of got, uh, always got referred to in, in the marketing world when I worked in the marketing world as low-hanging fruit, Pete. As you say, we, I mean, we know them and they've, they've performed for us, but I think it does come down to what we want to do next season. I don't think there's any point keeping them on or bring them back in if we're going to play in a way that's not going to suit them. So I think that needs to be evaluated and then you can decide whether whether it's worth keeping them on. I think the players that you mentioned have all proved a point that they're that they perform for Albion and that they're good quality players. So in the respect that there's fewer risks by signing them on again, then they could be good moves, but only if it's going to suit what we want to do next season. Otherwise, it kind of comes back to this lack of planning and we've got a squad of mismatched players that suit different styles. So, yeah, I think we need to compare it to what, what the actual plans are for next season. And one player that won't be re-signing... When 99.999% well in fact no I'd go as far as 100% we know he's not he's not going to be signing is Sam Johnston and Bruce made some comments after the game against Stoke about his plans for that position obviously the way Bruce is talking it seems to suggest he thinks he will be the manager next season there's obviously no guarantees that he that he will be and from polls that we've put out and well the poll that we put out suggested that the fans aren't so much split on it as I think it came out 30% for him to stay in 70% against. So it, the poll that we did would suggest that the fans primarily want somebody else. But Bruce seems to be talking as if he believes he will stay and his plans for that position seem to be to re-sign Button on another, probably another one-year deal and have Button and Palmer fight it out for that position. He kind of mentioned Griffiths a little bit in the quotes that I saw, but wasn't overly clear as to what his plan was. He talked about how highly he rates Griffiths and that he sees a future and that people at the club see a future number one in Griffiths. But I don't think he he didn't really, from what I saw, say categorically what his plans were for for Griffiths. Now I I would imagine if 
Button and Palmer are battling it out for the number one shirt that logically you would expect Griffiths to go out on loan again and continue his development because if he's third choice goalkeeper, he's barely even going to get a sniff in cup competitions unless somebody's somebody's injured. So I wouldn't see the point in him staying at the club to not even sit on the bench most weeks. But what do you make of Button and Palmer as one and two for next season, Pete? I don't think Button's done anything wrong when he's played for Albin, really. He's looked pretty steady from what I've seen. I don't think he's as good as Johnston, but you can argue that Johnston is one of the best keepers in the league and arguably shouldn't be playing in, in the championship. So. And that we'd probably have to go spend a lot of money to be to get somebody as good as Sam Johnston, which is possibly, given that we might have... Well, we will have a limited budget in the summer, probably not money well spent, given the needs we have elsewhere in the squad. Yeah, exactly. So you kind of... There's an aspect of accepting where we actually are as a club now, unfortunately. We're not that Premier League club that can afford to spend big wages on a goalkeeper and get someone that's going to be equally as good as Johnston. So I don't think Button and or Palmer would be bad choices. Palmer had a good spell at, at Lincoln last season and got them to the playoffs. Um, well, helped them to the playoffs. Like I say, Button's not really put a foot wrong when he's been in the squad. So I think they're decent options. I agree with you that I wouldn't like to see Button, Palmer and Griffiths at the club next season just because... You're going to stunt the development of Griffiths if he's not playing and he's just sitting on the bench. It'd be much better either going out to a, or whatever level it, that people see him as, League One or, or probably lower end of the championship. I was going to say, you'd pro- to be honest, if he's going to come in as our number one at some point in the near future, you'd probably want, he's played top half League One, you'd probably want him to have a crack at the bottom end of the championship, wouldn't you? Yeah, as well, as Albion, you would. It's just whether any of the clubs um, that fit into that mould kind of see him as, as an able first-choice keeper for them. And if they do, then then hopefully he can get a low move to the Championship. I can't say I've, I've seen much of Griffiths. I saw a little bit, of a little bit of Palmer last season at Lincoln, and, and he was impressive. So, well, I'd like to see Palmer get a bit more game time. But, yeah, he's kind of suffered from what we've spoken about with Griffiths this season, that he's been the third-choice keeper and he's just not really got any minutes because of it. So we don't Has want to see Griffiths do the same. Yeah, I think so. And it's the same as we're talking about with Griffiths for next season, that, I mean, Palmer's still a relatively young goalkeeper and, and he, well, he's just spent a season sitting on the bench and he's probably learnt from Johnston and, and Button in training and watching them play games. But I can't imagine he'd learn half as much as he would have done if he'd gone out on loan and played for 30, 40 games a season. Two questions on this, Pete. First of all, which way round would you start those two at the beginning of next season, either Button or Palmer, which way round would they be, one and two? And secondly, I saw an article from from Steve Madeley in The Athletic calling for Albion to not play Sam Johnston for the remaining games and, and put probably either Alex Palmer or, or, or David Button in for the remaining games. Do you concur with that? I think it's hard to answer the first one without seeing them in training every day. And Val and Bruce seem to have had Button as the number two and Palmer as the number three. Personally, I'd like to see it be Palmer as the number one if we're not using Johnston because just because he's come through the academy. And I think every fan has a kind of has that relationship with players that come through the academy and won't see them do well. But if Button's the better keeper, by far, well, yeah, if Button's considerably the better keeper, then I mean, you've kind of got to, got to play him if we're really pushing for promotion next season, then the points matter that little bit more. And regarding Johnston for the rest of the season, I want to send the question back to you because I think it, if we know he's not going to be here, then there's not much point playing him and it's better to see what Button and Palmer can do and trying to 
just give them some experience and the environment to develop a bit more. But you're the one that's worked in a football club. And for me, it depends what dropping Johnston will do for the, the atmosphere of the dressing room. Will it negatively affect it? And will it upset Johnston's mates if he, you know, causes a bit of a scene about it? And and yeah, just whether it will affect the dressing room. I mean, I can't see that it would at this point. I think it was different earlier in the season because at the point of that Preston game, Johnston was completely committed to trying to get us back out of this league. And we were very, very competitive in this division at the point at which Val decided to stay with David Button and not put Johnston back in after his suspension. So I think it, I think it was two very, very different scenarios. I would be surprised if... I'd be I'd be surprised if Johnston didn't understand the situation and and why he would he was he's being left out. The big thing that I have found with working with with players and working with goalkeepers is how tight the goalkeepers usually are and how they aren't competitive in the way with each other in the way that other positions actually are quite a lot of the time you 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 do actually see forwards defenders really kind of like ha- almost having rivalries for positions i'm not saying they don't get on but you 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 see almost rivalries develop when one's got the shirt and the other hasn't i actually don't generally see that of goalkeepers certainly certainly my experience i mean obviously my experience was where it really became quite tight was um you had carson and kylie for for a period and then it became for a long time it was Foster and Myhill and the relationship between the goalkeepers the goalkeeping coach those that were playing those that weren't playing was generally brilliant it might have just been those those goalkeepers but I can only speak from my experience so I don't know I don't know what it's like with different goalkeepers but certainly Ben and and Boas were very very supportive of, of each other so were so were Dean and and Scott when they, when they were together at the at the club. Generally speaking, goalkeepers it tends to be a bit of a goalkeepers union thing. I think the problem with Johnston was that he felt wronged by the manager then at that point because I think every other player who had got themselves suspended, which had been quite a few, had come straight back into the side, and Johnston didn't. And I, I and I can understand why he why why he felt that that was unfair I don't think he would consider the situation unfair at this point in time that Alex Palmer might get put ahead of him and I think as a young man like Alex Palmer is and a a young goalkeeper certainly in terms of experience I don't think Sam would put more pressure on him by making a song and dance about him not being in the side I actually think he would be very very supportive of him and Sam would just look forward to his move wherever that might be in in the summer i there's nothing about sam i know he's not the most popular person with with quite a lot of albion fans but from people i speak to that know him there's he's not a bad bloke at all in fact he's a quite the opposite he's he's a he's a good bloke from what i've heard and i think he would be a, a supportive colleague to uh, to another goalkeeper so i don't think there would be a negative impact in that sense I think what it would be is an acknowledgement from the manager that the season is over and whether Bruce wants to make that kind of a public acknowledgement, even though we all know that it is, 
it's still until it's mathematical it's quite a big statement to make that I believe that the that the season is so over that I am going to drop my first choice goalkeeper and prepare for for next season. Now, what impact that would have on the rest of the squad? I don't know because it it could it could actually end up having a positive impact because you see how badly we play when games really 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 matter. And maybe if that if that pressure was lifted, where Bruce was effectively saying to the lads, go out and express yourselves for the remainder of the season, that we might actually see a bit of a better West Bromwich Albion. I don't know, Pete, what do you think? I mean, it's possible because we've seen it in, in quite a few games, like the Fulham game and the and the Bournemouth game, where previously we'd said the season's over and then we see a better performance. So, I mean, if that is to do with the pressure of the games, then then you'd argue it might it might make it a bit easier for the players if we, Bruce does basically admit that the season's over, then they're not going to feel as pressured and, and we might see some results pick up. But I mean, if what you believe is is correct, that it probably won't cause an, an upset in the dressing room at all and Johnson will accept it and try and support Palmer and, and hope he has a good game, then I can't see why at this stage we wouldn't we wouldn't try Palmer just to get a few more minutes under his belt and, and see what he's like in, in a, a championship league game. Um, obviously played, I think it was one, one, maybe two for Luton early on on that emergency loan. But apart from that, he's not played. I think that they might be the only games he's played at this level. So um, it'll be worth seeing how he copes. And I can't see why Bruce wouldn't wouldn't do that because realistically, we all know that the season is over, even if it's not mathematically over. So well, yeah. and to that point, is it a good time for him because? Every game becomes life and death again as soon as next season kicks off. And it's not now. So is it maybe a good opportunity for him that to, to go into games as the number one for the remainder of this season, knowing that if he makes a mistake, it really doesn't impact anything. He's not costing us a playoff place. He's not costing us an automatic promotion place. In some ways, yes, because it gives him a, a kind of environment where he can learn a bit over the next uh, what is it, six or seven games that we've got left in the season, and and it's kind of a, a low pressure. And he, if he does make a mistake, then it doesn't really matter. Like you say, it's not life and death. But then at the same time, it might not be as representative of how good a player he is if he's not playing in in those high pressure situations. And he probably wouldn't develop as much if he's not in in those high pressure situations. So it might be a good chance to see what he can offer, but. Without that pressure, it's, it maybe isn't a true representation of it. Well, it'll certainly be interesting to see who starts the game against Blackpool on Good Friday. Obviously, that will be some indication of where Steve Bruce views the season to be. Does he view it the same as us as pretty much over. Well, that's all we have time for today. But if there's something you want covered on the pod, then please do reach out to us via the pod account at Albion Analysis, or you can tweet myself at CJHall83 or Pete on at AnalyticsWBA. We will be back after the two Easter fixtures. And unless there's some sort of dramatic double victory coupled with freak results elsewhere in the division that suddenly makes the table look markedly different, we will be taking a different tact for the next pod. Because as I say, the more and more games that go by with Albion not getting the results that they needed to, the more pointless it is to do in-depth analysis of games that ultimately 
are more and more meaningless. So what Pete and I have planned is that we will both make the cases for and against Bruce staying as Baggy's boss, and then we will come together and see what our conclusions are on that situation. And then we will also look at some of the alternatives. We're Basically, we're both going to draw up our own shortlist, not show them to each other in advance, and see what names we come up with. Do we come up with the same names? Who knows? But until then, thanks for listening and up the baggies. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure, 24-7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.